All right, and we're back now in week five um, of this war. And um, I'm here joined with Rabbi Foreman. Rabbi Foreman now back with me in the United States. Is that right, Rabbi Foreman? I am, as about 24 hours ago. It was a bit of an anguished decision, actually. The chance to be in Israel uh, and just kind of, you know, week after week, letting yourself miss flight after flight because it just feels like the place to be uh, was a real special thing. I think that's kind of crazy. Like, like just selfishly, I'm so happy that you're back here. But um, I think it's sort of remarkable that um, in the midst of a war, you had a hard time leaving. You had a hard time coming back to America. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really did. Um, my daughter who was with us you know the night before we left wrote a note a very poignant note which uh all respect to privacy and won't won't really read but it was a note that sort of just meditating read it she's upon be, where fine with <laughs> upon you know where home really is and what is what does home really mean when you say you want to be yeah. home and you miss your bed and you miss in a very visceral way this sense of being with kind of strangers who all of a sudden feel like family, a nation that feels like a family, kind of like we were discussing last week or the week before, creates this really strange new feeling of home. So that was special and beautiful. We, uh, night before we left, I was talking about Ariella's project before, which was making these blankets, these teddy bears, and we went to another one of those hotels where folks from Sterot were staying. That same experience of kids, you know, instinctively reaching for these blankets and mothers understanding a little bit more about, you know, kids for kids, it's just visceral, this feeling of something you can hug for mothers. It's, uh, you know, that sense that somebody cared enough about you to, to knit this thing. It, it's incredible. Like, I think like you're having a hard time leaving Israel because like you, you had a job there, like you and your family had a job there and it, you know, wasn't to fight a war and it wasn't to free the hostages. It was to just hug the people who needed a hug. And, and you're leaving that, and that, I see it on your face how that, yeah. that pained you. I can tell you here yeah. in America, your, your reflections on home gives uh, words to, I think, what we're all unconsciously feeling here. We sort of know the way in which Israel is our home. I was talking to a, a whole bunch of people who were talking about how, like, they're millennials. For much of their life, dealing with so much of Israeli culture was very cringy. Like, nobody says... Am Yisrael Chai. Nobody is like right. gonna go to the Israeli dance class. Like nobody goes right. But they're all like got really interested in Israeli dance all of a sudden, right? And like, <laughs> let's take some Israeli dance class and let's eat hummus and falafel and like, you know, have some shawarma from the local Israeli joint because there's this craving to be with your people, to be home and support home during this time. Yeah, I mean, just little things, you know, my daughter's project was, you know, her tagline for it is I can't give every child a hug, but maybe I could give every displaced kid something to hug. And that notion of a hug itself, I was talking to you about it last week with these hostage families, all you want to do is hug people. Mm -hmm. And it just gives me a new window into the idea that, you know, so much of what we do in Aleph Beta is cognitive and figuring out the secrets of the Bible and our way into the spiritual is cognitive, but there's a whole other aspect of communication which is not cognitive. That's uh, that's there whether we know it or not, and it's that kind of communication that somehow predominates in times like this. And hugs are a big part of that. 
So I don't know what to tell you, but it's hard to leave that. Yeah. Yeah. So what what else do you have to uh, to tell us stories from the home front? They've been very comforting and inspiring and meaningful to listen to. So what was your last week like? What do you have to, what do you have to tell us? Yeah, I mean just a, a couple things. Um, again, this was my last week with the folks from Kfar Maimon in the hotel where I was at. They went from just the shock of being displaced to trying to get their bearings. And part of getting their bearings was setting up a school for all their kids. Uh, how do you do that? And they ended up actually going to Yad Vashem, taking over the building of Yad Vashem pretty much. And Yad Vashem contributed a couple teachers. And then just fascinatingly, literally volunteer teachers just converged on the school from all the corners of Yerushalayim. And these parents are you know they're thrilled the the they said the teaching has been wonderful it's been loving it's been professional the kids are connecting to it and i don't know but somehow it's working out wonderfully for them and so they they've got school settled um which was very beautiful one of the issues which they're concerned about and i was chatting with some of the organizers about was the the folks in the community who are displaced from their jobs there's tomato farmers mm-hmm. who have greenhouses and they can't get back to it and they've lost uh, 200,000, 300,000 shekel in revenue from uh, from lost crops. There's a goat farmer and beekeeper who can't get back to his goats and bees. And it sounds like eventually the state is likely to come in uh, with some money for them, even some significant money. But I asked what eventually means and eventually is somewhere between months and 10 years wow. <laughs> in terms of the the bureaucracy. Right. So they've got to figure that out. Um, I had an idea with them, uh, which I'll just put forward. Like the thought that I had was like, we used to have this thing. Sometimes we would meet with people who were friends of Aleph Beta and we'd play a dream with me with them. Yes. We would sit down with uh, donors and, and wise thinkers and say, you know, what if you were CEO for a day, right? That was often our, our question we'd ask. Like, you got to be CEO for a day. What would you do? Yeah. We used to say to them, look, here's your resources. Um, dream with me. If you had this company and you could take it anywhere in five years, where would you take it? Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, like, what if you did a dream with me with these families? The, the inspiration for this, actually, was the guy with the craft store in Nativo. What was the guy with the craft store in Nativo doing? Right. What he was doing was taking, getting all of his crafts and his suppliers, and he was actually kind of volunteering pretty much. He was like bringing all that stuff down to the Dead Sea. In the Dead Sea, there's hotels which have a lot of these folks who have been evacuated, and he just brought crafts there and set up hmm. these uh, you know, elderly crocheting and knitting and building things and even regular people. And it was really welcome. And I, I thought to myself, okay, one second, <laughs> maybe there's something to talk about here. You know, what if you did a dream with me with every one of these 15 families, you know, and you said to a guy like craft store guy, like, let's say for, you didn't have to worry about your salary for the next six months. Let's say that was covered by donors from America that wanted to, to to help you out. But you had a chance to take your particular skills, your expertise, your resources, and deploy them to, to volunteer, right, like this guy did for, um, for other folks in the South. How would you use them, 
right? And I was chatting with the organizers and, and, and stuff, and there's like there's this beekeeper, right? And what if beekeeper guy went around showing you know kids in these hard hit areas what it's like to be a beekeeper and how that really works? What if the if the, the physical therapists who are out of work, right, volunteered to you know with soldiers who are wounded? I think that kind of sort of stuff is happening anyway a little bit. But if it could happen where these guys felt like, okay, there's some folks in in the U.S. abroad who want to give, who want to donate, and they kind of have your back and can invest in these stories, I, you know, maybe that's maybe that's uh, something. So it was an idea that kind of caught on a little bit um, with the folks from Far Maimon. I think they're working on putting out a website, and if it shows up and it's there, you know, I'll tell people about it and, and they can look at some of these stories. That's really rich. It makes me think a lot about the the dichotomy that comes up quite a bit here in Aleph Beta, but, and we've mentioned already in this podcast, between um, Bracious Aleph and Bracious Bays, uh, between World 1 and World 2, as we call it, or um, or even Tree of Knowledge and Tree of Life, which is that when there's a problem, there's a part of us, the Elohim part of us, um, that is utilitarian and trying to fix the problem. So if somebody's out of work, can you make sure you give them resources? That's the way an Elohim, a utilitarian thinker would think. But then there's the Yudke Vavke way of thinking about things, right? Which is like a more being related way of relating to the problem. And there's the problem is not so much this person doesn't have resources, but who is this person? This person is a tomato farmer. This person is a physical therapist. This person right, has, there's a dignity to their being, to their role, and there's, um, uh, there's an appreciation for their craft and who they want to show up in the world. It's not just like, can we funnel money to them or funnel resources to them, but how can they show up with dignity contributing to the economy? Contrib- like, that's one of the, the spiritual losses here is like, they didn't just lose their money, but like, they were they were equals. They were equals with everyone else in the nation, right? They just they had the yep. dignity of the tomato farmer and the dignity of the lawyer and the dignity of the high tech worker, and that they they mm-hmm. are deprived of that. They're now you know needy. Um, so I, I love this thought because it really pays attention to something beyond the mere like calculus of like oh they're they're missing dollars. How do you get them the dollars? It's actually like thinking creatively. How do you um, give them the opportunity to show up and and be their whole selves again. Um, that's what it just makes me think of. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of what I was, uh, some of the stuff that I was doing over this past week. I'll tell you one other little story. I walked into my one of my favorite bookstores in uh, Jerusalem, uh, just above Ben Yehuda. It's Pomerantz Bookstore uh, back when, the first publisher of my first book, The Beast That Crouched, was at the door, went out of business. Pomerantz made a deal. They bought up all the remaining stock of The Beast That Crouches at the door. They bought up like 600 books, and they just piled them at the front of the store. And the owner, Michael Pomerantz, loved it so much, he said that he just like sold them all by convincing every last person <laughs> who walked in that this is what they absolutely positively had to, re- had to read. That's really so sweet. I, yeah, so I love Michael for that. And uh, tragically, uh, Michael died not too long ago. It, you know, wonderful, wonderful man, and a beautiful store. And his kids and his wife have had taken over the business. And I happened to walk in this past week, and I was chatting with his wife, his widow, and um, 
you know, there was a sign on the door, please pray for the safety of, and it turns out those are her kids, right? She's got kids in the army. She's got one in the north, and she's got one in the south and in Gaza. And uh, I said, "Are is that it for your kids in the army, those two? She says, no, actually, there's a third. What's the story with the third? Turns out the third has a job that they didn't really need in the army this time around. The job of her third soldier is, I don't know how exactly how to, to uh, explain it, sort of like a spy. It's where you keep an eye on, um, on uh, you know, a suspicious village or whatever it is that you're concerned about. What they need to do is kind of like build a hideout in the woods and be as inconspicuous as you possibly can and just drop down into the dirt and into the leaves and with binoculars just sort of be motionless for hours and hours and hours and hours at a time. Like, that's his job, wow. right? So she said, like, that wasn't really needed this time, so his unit wasn't called up. So I said, oh, so it's really just those two kids. She says, no, he's actually fighting too. Mm. I said, what happened? He said he felt bad that he wasn't that he wasn't involved, so he volunteered with a different unit. Yeah. And uh, he got himself into a different unit, yeah. and he's... Um, off uh, doing his thing. I was just listening to a, a podcast today that was des- describing the difference between the the Russians and the Israelis and how they were able to mobilize 300,000 soldiers. Um, and when the Russians needed soldiers for their war, and this is a country of, of like uh, millions, millions, millions more people than Israelis, but they couldn't mobilize 300,000 like it took them months to, to mobilize 300,000 soldiers. They had to go into prisons and promise all kinds of deals to, to rapists and to uh, all kinds of criminals to, to give them amnesty if they go and they fight. But in Israel, right, in, in a day uh, and at the end of the week, like pe- planes coming back from overseas, people, uh, they, they, they ended up getting, right, conscripting many more soldiers than they had actually called up because of, of volunteers. It just just tells you um, about this yeah. feeling, this feeling of of needing to be a part of it and needing to to help and defend defend our yeah. homeland. Mind boggling. By the way, and, and uh, you know, I had a chance to chat with the mother of one of those soldiers whose kid was in America at the time and made his way back. And you know, it's interesting. You would think maybe the Israeli army you know they chartered flights and you had to pay these guys all had to pay for their own flights and they still you know i i think you know tens of tens of thousands of israelis came back uh in order to be to be a part of this um and that spirit is i don't know it's very inspiring to me it's crazy we're all being called to do the thing that we need to do and it's it's really remarkable you talked about oh this is cognitive versus like here we are sitting in this podcast cognitively giving words to something that is intuitive with all within all of us the spiritual feeling of oneness the spiritual feeling of like we're part of a larger body and it's funny because i was just talking to again i mentioned this employee last week, uh, but somebody who, who had the opportunity to be called up uh, to use her technological prowess to to help. And she was describing what she's doing. She's working on this app that the soldiers have in Gaza um, that gives them like real-time satellite updates. I don't know if you've been hearing about, about it. I've been hearing about it in different reports that the, the soldiers have basically like real-time satellite imagery to tell them where to go and what to do in Gaza. So mm. she's that's what she's working on. 
so she's gone from developing the Aleph Beta app. <laughs> uh, she totally turned our app around, by the way. Like uh, people had been complaining about it and made it much smoother and better, to now uh, developing for for the Israelis. And I'm I'm so proud of her. And and I, I just remember the phone call with her of like, "Hey, Emu, can I go do this?" And it was just like, like you, a you don't need our permission, but b like it was so obvious that everybody needs to go to do the thing that they're being called to do at this moment, right? That's just yeah. snap into place. Like everybody has their their role in the nation. So I want to kind of end, Emu, with just sharing with you one last story, if I could, from, uh, I'm wondering if you could help me make something of this. Um, I was davening this past Shabbos in the little pop-up shul in the Leonardo Plaza Hotel where everybody else from Kfar Maimon is. And again, davening there is its own kind of experience. And um, what happened, though, for Shabbos Day really struck me. Uh, You know, we went through the regular laning, which is the story of Vayera, the story of Abraham culminating in the Akedah and the binding of Isaac. And then it's time for the Haftorah. Haftorah is really, you know, usually a pretty sleepy affair, right? You read the Haftorah, you listen to it, you get ready for Musaf. You think, you know, the Kiddush is right around the corner, right? And um, listening to Haftarah, and all of a sudden, from the woman's side, I'm listening, and I couldn't tell if it was one or a few women that just broke into sobs. And it was, like, enough that it, like, stopped the Shliach Tzibur from, from reading for a moment, and it was just, like, shocking. And I'm thinking, like, oh, gosh, what happened? Like, did... Was there an emergency? I'm like running over. And then I realized that it was just the Haftorah that she was listening to that caused her to break into sobs. And I'm thinking like my mind was wandering. Doesn't happen very often, right? (laughs) And like I I think I I, maybe I was looking at something else in my Tanakh and I, I, I didn't. But then like my mind was jolted and I was thinking, oh, of course, it's that Haftorah, right? So what was the Torah and what prompted those sobs? It's the story of a child who dies and is brought back to life, right? I didn't interview the woman afterwards, but I think I can understand, right? These women are just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Yishuvim, where you know terrorists came in and murdered children. These people know children who are murdered. It's not like me, who's a, a first or a second degree removed. There's no degree removed. They know kids who died, who were killed. And you read a story like this, and it really gets to you. And it was it was these words, right? Basically, what happens in the story is there's this Shunammite woman. It's crazy. We, we talked about and, this uh, already in our podcast. Yeah, we spoke briefly about uh, about her story. And she's the, you know, she's... Um, one day she takes care of, of Alicia and Alicia wants to do something for her. And that's the part that we spoke about before where she says, look, I'm fine. But it was the quote, I think that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. I'm doing fine. I'm part of my, part of my nation. I don't need anything. But Alicia insists and finds out that she really, she doesn't have a kid. And she says, um, you know, her husband is old and doesn't have a kid. And, and by the way, Emu, if you listen to the story, right, and you ask, why is this the Haftorah for Vayera? What does it remind you of? My husband is old, and I don't have a kid. It's, 
Avraham and Sarah, right? She, my husband is old. She laughed. Sarah laughed because my husband is old and we don't have a kid. Exactly. And all of a sudden, Alicia comes and says, uh, you know, I really like to talk to her. And she was standing in the doorway. Mm. Well, who else was standing in the doorway when Sarah. they heard they were going to yeah. have a kid? Sarah was. Right. Sarah was. And then he says, This time, you'll have a child. Is that the exact, that exact words? Almost, Almost the exact yeah. same words. This whole story is playing off of the Akedah, and hence it is the Haftorah for the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. These are the events of the birth of Isaac, and somehow this child is almost like this latter-day Isaac. And so what happens with this child? Vayigdal Hayelad, which by the way is the also same word Isaac, with Isaac. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, it grows up. And then one day, Vayihi Hayom, it happens, he's out in the fields. He says to his father, Roshi, Roshi, my head, my head. They say, take him to his mother. They take him and bring him to his mother. She's there with him, right? Vayamot, and he eventually dies. Um, by the way, you know, in the Akeda, Isaac is with Abraham all the way to the, to the end. They're together, they're together, but the child dies. So what does she do? She does something strange. She takes him up wordlessly, and she puts him up in the attic, which was the little room she had made for the prophet Elisha, and she closes the attic, and she leaves. Even the word and then, ba- without even, bata'al sounds yeah. kind of... Um, yep, absolutely. Kind that's, of Akeda-esque. That's, yeah. Yep. Where do we have that word in the Akeda? I mean, va'alehu ola, like God commands yeah. uh, uh, Abraham yep. to... The, the word vata'al is a go, means go up. Here she's going up to the attic, but there it's uh, make a, a, a ola offering, an offering that goes all the way yeah. up. Yeah, right. Almost as if this is her ola. She brings the child up to God, but puts him on mitat isha lokim, puts him on the bed of the man of God, of Elisha, and then closes the door. And what's striking about this is that she doesn't tell her husband anything. Hmm. But Tikra Elisha, she goes and talks to her husband, and she says, Shilchani l'yachad min hanarim, get me one of the lads, please, and one of the donkeys. Varutza adishalokim vashuva. I'm going to go to the man of God, vashuva, and I'll return. This is remarkable. I actually hadn't noticed this. What you're saying is she doesn't announce to everyone, my son is dead, let me go yell at the prophet. She, it's almost like she doesn't yep. accept. Like, he, he dies. Absolutely. So she's going to close the door. She's like, I'm going to hit pause on this. This is not the way the story yep. ends. I don't That's accept right. this. Interesting. I don't accept this. Crazy, right? And then without even telling her husband, because if you would tell your husband, it would be real in the world. And it's a, it's an acceptance. Yeah, That's like right. That. It's got to be like that's in the attic, which is you know, <laughs> it, the reality in the attic is the reality in the attic, but it's not the reality in the world. Right. Right? That's why we and have addicts, like, right? <laughs> right? So we have addicts. Yeah. And so I need one of the lads and one of the donkeys. I'm going to go to the Ishalokim Vashuva. Now remember also, Abraham on his way up the mountain, what did he tell? Remember, he says to the lads who are with him, he says, What am I going to be doing with Isaac? We got to go up and you, you'll stay. We got to go up. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go bow and I'll return to you and we're going to come back. It's almost like he lies at some level because God told him, like, you're going to kill your child at the top of the mountain. He says, no, we're, we're going to go. We're going to come back. And here it's like, we're going to go. We're going to come back. Same sort of language. I, it's starting to sound like the Akeda. And remember, um, 
I want one of these donkeys and there's these lads. It's almost like, and, 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 and she's going and the husband says, Madua why are you going? It's not uh, a special holiday. It's not Shabbos. And what's her answer? Shalom. <laughs> I'll see you. Right. I'll be back. She doesn't say anything. And she saddles the donkey, right? Just like Abraham, like Abraham did. Right? Mm-hmm. Saddles the donkey. And she goes, um, she tells the donkey driver, don't stop for anything, and goes. And she goes to the man of God at the top of the mountain. Again, the Akedah's at the top of the mountain. She gets to the top of Harakarmel. And she sees the man of God, and and the man of God has got his guy, Gehazi, his right-hand man. And uh, Gehazi tells Elisha that there's that Shunammite woman. She's coming to us. And so Elisha goes and says, well, go and greet her. And so he says, Gehazi says, how are you doing? How's your husband? How's everyone? How's the child? And what does she say? Here's her chance, right? How's the child? What does she say to Gehazi? Shalom. Right? Same thing she said to her husband. It's <laughs> the only word she'll say. Same actually. thing she said to her husband. It's the only word she say. So she goes to the top of the mountain and talk about wordless, right? Nonverbal communication. She grabs hold of his feet and doesn't say anything. And Gehazi thinks she's mad. So Gehazi comes to like push her off of the prophet's feet. But the prophet says, let her be. Her soul is embittered by Hashem many, and I don't know why. God hid it from me, and God hasn't told me. And so she says, and and he doesn't know. And this is when she speaks. And this, as far as I can tell, was when the woman broke into sobs. But Tomer, she says, Did I ever ask for this child from you? Hello, Amarti, didn't I tell you don't joke with me? Now, isn't it interesting? What's Isaac's name and what does it mean? Isaac's name is Yitzchak. It means you will laugh. You will laugh. And she says, you know, did I ever ask you for this child? Didn't I tell you not to joke with me, not to laugh with me about it? Mm. I, I said, I said, I didn't need this child. I said, I'm, I'm fine, but you were the one who wanted to give me this child, right? That's all she says. She doesn't even say that he's dead. Says to Gehazi, go, give me my staff. I have a mission to do. I don't want to be interrupted by anybody. If anybody finds you along the way, don't talk with him, right? And he goes, and he goes up to the attic. And when he goes up to the attic, he climbs the attic. He closes the door in the attic. He prays to God. He lies down on the child, and the child comes back to life. And when the child comes back to life, he comes down the stairs with the child, and he says to her, holding the child, si'i b'neich, Here's your child. Pick up your child. She bows before him. And she takes the child and she leaves. And notice, what doesn't she do? She doesn't say thank you. Doesn't say thank you. Doesn't say anything. Like if you, if this was you, wouldn't you be like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. He was dead and now he's alive. She doesn't say a word. She takes the child and leaves. What do you make of that? 
I guess what I feel is she doesn't feel indebted ever. She doesn't feel in the beginning like she, she feels wronged because this was not a gift that can be taken away. She didn't ask for yes. this. So yes. that, that's her point. And so she's not going to say thank you at the end because from her perspective, something is being restored that was owed to her. Exactly. Now, here's the crazy thing. We saw all the resonances of the Akeda in this. There's a reason that this is left over for the Akeda. The whole story tracks with the birth of Isaac. Isaac was a child that never should have been born. This child is a child that never should have been born. A child to people too old to have a child. And here, too, there's a journey up the mountain. And here, too, the spouse doesn't know about it, just like the spouse didn't know about it on when Abraham's journey. He didn't tell Sarah what was going on. And in each story, there's a donkey. And in each story, there's lads, right? But there's one huge difference in the story. Because what's Abraham doing at the top of the mountain? What's he supposed to do at the top of the mountain? Give his child back to God. And what's she doing at the top of the mountain? Demanding her child back. She's taking her child back to God. These stories are literally mirror images of each other. They're two Akeda stories that are exactly opposites of each other. One story is a man who says, I have to admit that God's claim on my child is as great or greater than my own. God is the great father in the sky. He's, ta- he's given this child. He wants the child back. I go to give the child back. And that's one story. And that's the Torah portion. And the Haftarah is literally the opposite story. Mm. Is the story of a woman who just sees it differently. Right, who says, I didn't ask for this child. I don't want to be joked with. This was a gift. You can't do that. I'm going to the mountain because I will not accept this reality and I'm going to storm the heavens. And I'm sorry, but I want my child back. And when I get my child back, I wordlessly take my child and I bow in in recognition, but that's all. And to me, I just don't know what to make of that sobs of that mother, you're listening to the story of a woman who came to God and said, I want my child back. After there's the story that you read in the Torah of another parent who says, I'm willing to give you my child. And it just struck me that like this is the moment that we're in, in Israel. You have mothers. I've seen these mothers. I've talked with them that every mother whose child is in Gaza, every mother of a child in the army is a mother who is Akeda-like, basically saying, I'm prepared. I'm giving this child. I, I hope the child comes home. I hope it's peaceful, but, but I'm prepared. This is what Israel needs. And, and if it has to be the final sacrifice, it has to be the final sacrifice. And that's one spiritual path and there's great validity to that, and the Torah portion screams that there's great validity to that, but there's another path, equally valid, that's completely contradictory. And You can also have a woman who says, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, I, I have the other energy, and I just need this child back. And here, and she wasn't an evil person, she got her child back. Now, I don't know if we get our children back anymore like that, but it almost seems like the point of the Haftorah is to validate the opposite feeling at the same time. You can be the opposite mother and come to God in truth and in love and then say, I need this child back. And to me, that was the anguished cry that came from the other side of the Mechitza, that, that a woman struggling with that, that, you know, that he was a kid that was murdered and I, and she knows the mother and 
you can really relate to this woman. And look, I'm not someone here who lost a child. I can't even imagine what it's like to lose a child, to know a child that was brutally murdered like that. I'm not even someone who's sending my spouse into war. I can only begin to imagine those feelings. But I know enough about life to know that those kinds of things stir very contradictory feelings about God. And these two narratives seem to be saying it's okay to have those contradictory feelings about God. You can be a hero with both of those feelings. I think what you what you were saying is so rich and really hard to wrap my mind around. And I just want to make it explicit for everybody. But like, I don't know, I'm the type, or at least I was the type of black and white religious thinker. When I look at the Torah, I expect that I understand the lesson and I know how to apply it in my life right? The Akeda. Uh, God will ask anything of you. You have to be willing. He won't really make you do the horrible stuff, but you have to be willing, right? I, now I know the lesson of the Akeda. I know that God wants my complete, unflappable loyalty, right? That, that's the lesson in life. And through, I think, your work, you've shown many, many, many times that God is not that simple. And the Torah is not that simple. And the Haftorah is the sage's way of saying the Akeda is one lens. And now we're going to present the counterpoint, which is God gets to demand things, but you know who else gets to demand things? The Isha Shunamit. She gets to storm <laughs> storm up the mountain and and ask for her kid back. And God will, yep. will do that. Yeah, both of these extreme examples are true at the same time. And it's almost like the reason that story is there is to throw that monkey wrench of complexity into this thing and say, spirituality has many hues and complexions. You know, it's that line from Shakespeare, um, you know, there are greater, th- there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. You know, you can have your philosophy, your religious philosophy, how everything works out, and the Torah is there to tell you, you know, what is larger than that. You can't figure it out. But what Abraham was doing was valid, and the heights of her- spiritual heroism, and what the Shunammite woman was doing was valid, and the heights of spiritual heroism, and they seem as they contradict each other. I, I don't know. I don't have an explanation. But to me... Um, the the sobs of the woman were so revealing as to um, you know the the energy and the legacy of the Shunammite woman and 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 not to take away from the Akeda, um, but it was uh, it was a mind blowing experience to to be there for that. Thank you for sharing this this piece. It, it's it's uh it's really meaningful. And your I don't know at the end is is part of it. Like we we actually don't know. We have no idea what any of this means. That I, I guess that to me that's my takeaway from this. My takeaway is is that the Bible is hitting you between the eyes that you just don't know. The I don't know is my takeaway somehow. Yeah. This episode was recorded by Imushalev and Rabbi David Foreman and was edited by Ari Levison and me, Hilary Gutman. For meaningful content that will inspire you and give you strength during this difficult time, please visit alephbeta.org to find a curated collection of videos related to Israel at war. <laughs>